0: Shut up, and sit down. You're listening to The Bridge. Keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund.
1: Hello everyone, you're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast bringing you this sports show. What's it like to make a living immersed in the NFL stats and record books? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 43 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right. The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America each Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you missed the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to and interact with The Bridge at the end of this program. If anything, you can call in or text the show 24-7 at 929-Bridge-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Sound the siren! Sports fans live and die by their favorite teams and often do the same with their favorite athletes. If possible, fans will do whatever it takes to feel a closer connection to their favorite players, whether with a photograph, an autograph, or a piece of memorabilia. The latter can get a little pricey, though, especially if the memorabilia has some significant meaning or was used in some significant game or moment. But a recent auction for a game-used jersey took significant meaning to a whole nother level. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Read Like Real News. Elimination games can be one of the best parts about sports because of the drama those games provide. In almost all circumstances, a team would want its best players to be playing in the game to give the team the best chance to win. The American League and National League wildcard games that kick off the MLB playoffs is a prime example of the drama-filled battle for two teams vying to get into the postseason. But one of the biggest criticisms to this year's baseball postseason was Baltimore Orioles' manager, who decided to leave the best relief pitcher in baseball on his bench while the game headed in two extra innings. That pitcher was left-handed closer Zach Britton, who ended the regular season with 47 saves, a 0.54 earned run average, and hadn't allowed an earned run since April. Fans expected to see Britton enter the game eventually, especially after he was witnessed warming up three separate times during the game. Well, he never did emerge from the bullpen, though Showalter said that his pitcher was indeed available. Fortunately, baseball fans were able to own their own piece of one of the biggest managerial blunders in postseason history. That's because Zach Britton's Game Muse jersey was put on Major League Baseball's online auction block on Sunday night. That's right. Britain's Jersey, which smelled of pine tar, chewing tobacco, sunflower seeds, spilt beer thrown from beer cans in Toronto, warm-up sweat but not in-game sweat, and the angry tears and broken dreams of not pitching in a wild card game, was actually sold at an auction, with the winning bidder paying $2,650 for a Game used Jersey that got about the same amount of use if Cal Ripken Jr. was to throw on his jersey while watching the game from his living room. Britain was even in on noticing the ridiculousness of profiting from an article of clothing seemingly worth as much as a bathrobe. Tweeting out, LOL, hashtag false advertising. But a game-used jersey from an athlete who didn't actually play in the game doesn't compare to other sports memorabilia that has sold at auction, not even close. We all remember one player in the Air Bud movie who kept used items in his socks for good luck during the basketball games, such as Scottie Pippen's Orange Peel, Sean Kemp's apple core, or Dennis Rodman's Juicy Fruit Gum. But how about Robert Griffin III's game-used ankle cast signed by the entire Washington Redskins team that sold for $1,500? How about Tom Seaver's toothpick found in a warm-up jacket 23 years after he used it? You could also be the owner of Ty Cobb's Dentures, an autographed Mickey Mantle death threat, Nolan Ryan's jockstrap. The list of useless items with ties to athletes or teams has been endless. And Britain's Jersey shows the market has no signs of slowing down. Start saving now and keep your eyes peeled for future items, such as Derek Jeter's Little Black Book, Greg Odin's Knees, Johnny Manziel's Bankruptcy Papers, Madison Bumgarner's Unused Tobacco Spittoon, LeBron James' handshake. Bill Belichick's broken Microsoft tablet, Tom Brady's air pump, and Peyton Manning's expired Papa John's coupons. I'm John Lund with sports news read like real news. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. When we come back, the ghost of Walter Payton was spotted in Miami for this week's Wait. Who? We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. The Miami Dolphins haven't exactly had the best running attack of recent seasons, but that all changed this past Sunday when a star running back was born. Well, at least for one week, that is. Here's this week's Wait. Who? (laughs) Who?
0: The Miami Dolphins haven't exactly had many prolific running backs in recent years. You might remember Ricky Williams, who played for two stints in Miami from 2002 to 2005 and 2007 to 2010, with a brief retirement thrown in there for good measure, for smoking that sweet, sweet Mary Jane. Williams is second on the all-time rushing yards list in Miami history, with Larry Zonka. Running for the most yards in team history with 6,737 yards over his seven years there. But that was back in the 70s. Recently, Miami hasn't had much of a running game. When Lamar Miller left for the Texans coming into this season and new RB Arian Foster went down with yet another injury, Ronnie Brown wasn't walking through that door. Enter, Jay Ajayi. Wait. Who? J.H.I.E. was redshirted as a true freshman at Boise State University in 2011, and during his free time that season, decided to steal some sweatpants from Walmart. He was later arrested and sentenced to five days in jail. I mean, sweatpants in the school bookstore are pretty expensive, but come on, man. As a junior in 2014, He finished fourth in the nation with 1,823 rushing yards and second nationally to current San Diego Chargers running back Melvin Gordon, with 28 rushing touchdowns. He ended his season with a 134-yard. Three touchdown performance in the Broncos' 38-30 win over Arizona in the Fiesta Bowl, and later announced he would forego his senior season and enter the 2015 NFL Draft. Ajayi was drafted 149th overall in the fifth round by the Miami Dolphins, and signed his rookie contract, worth more than $2.5 million. Just think of how many sweatpants that money could buy. He made his professional debut on November 8, 2015, against the Buffalo Bills, and scored his first NFL touchdown against the San Diego Chargers in Week 15. Overall, though, he didn't see much of the field. This season, after being held to under-double-digit carries in Miami's first three games, Ajayi rushed for 42 yards and a score and had the breakout game of his career against the Pittsburgh Steelers, despite the return of Foster to the lineup. Ajayi rushed for 204 yards on 25 carries and scored two touchdowns to help lead the Dolphins to the 30-15 upset win. The former soccer player is now the only Super Bowl era Dolphin, other than Ricky Williams to run for 200 yards and two touchdowns in a single game. Williams holds the franchise record with 228 yards in a game, set back in 2002. So, did Ricky Williams slide a little slicky icky to the new Miami running back before the game? Was that really Barry Sanders? Does anyone even watch football anymore? If anything, Who's a fun name to yell for your fantasy team when he breaks free for the end zone? Jay That's who.
1: Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. When we come back, we'll meet this week's guest and take a look at what's going on in the National Football League. We'll be right back on the bridge keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge at any time at 929-Bridge-7. That's 929-274-3437. We've talked a lot of baseball over the past three shows. We've chatted with Paul Francis Sullivan about his Sully Baseball Daily podcast. We had Jack Curry of the Yes Network recap the 2016 season for the New York Yankees and Zachary D. Reimer, an MLB lead writer for Bleach Report. Dropped by last week to talk about the MLB playoffs. You can find those episodes on iTunes by searching for the bridge sports podcast, or you can go to londonbridge.com backslash whatever their last names might be. So that's backslash Sully backslash Curry and backslash Reimer to check out those baseball episodes. We are right in the heart of the National and American League Championship Series to see who will move on to play in the Fall Classic, but since those series are still undecided, this week the focus has switched to the National Football League, with the discussion centered around the play of some of the bigger-named quarterbacks in the league. Since I love posing questions to all you loyal callers and texters, my question for you this week Who do you see as the best and worst quarterbacks up to this point? Maybe some quarterbacks you thought would do well that have not. We may need to R-E-L-A-X on that answer. Or some quarterbacks that have overperformed that you might not have expected to be doing so well up to this point. So give me a call or shoot me a text and let's talk about the quarterback situations in the National Football League. Which teams might be benefiting or which teams might be in trouble based on their current quarterback play and what they expect to see from it as the season moves on. To help talk about that a little bit more, my guest for this week is Scott Kasmar. He is an NFL writer and an assistant editor for Football Outsiders. He also does some writings for Bleacher Report and ESPN Insiders. You can find a ton of his writings all over the internet. You can follow him on Twitter at FO underscore Scott Kasmar, which is Scott Common Spelling, K-A-C-S-M-A-R. He's always tweeting about the National Football League and spewing different statistics and different things that he's come across in his workings to help us better understand what's going on in the world of sports. He was a main contributor to profootballreference.com back in the day. And actually came up with some formulas to help decide the starting game tallies for quarterbacks and actually got some numbers changed on that. He also developed a formula to figure out fourth quarter comebacks and game winning drives, which is a big topic of discussion nowadays as to what makes quarterbacks elite and if they're good in the clutch or not. He now has the numbers to back all those discussions up. And we also get into some of the current quarterback play in the National Football League, dealing with Tom Brady, the situation with the Dallas Cowboys, if they should switch back to Tony Romo, and if Aaron Rodgers should continue to tell us to R-E-L-A-X. It was a very interesting conversation. We were able to discuss a lot of different stats and learn a lot more about some of the different intricacies that you don't necessarily know about when watching football on Sunday. We were a little short on time, so I had to cut the beginning of Scott's introduction about how he got started in this industry and really got involved with statistics. But you can read his full story over on his website at captaincomeback.wordpress.com. Not only is his own biography there, but also everything he's really ever written regarding statistics in the National Football League. So you can spend some time over there. I'll also attach a link to his website in my show notes as well. Without further ado, let's get into that interview. I'm here with Scott Kazmar. He is an NFL writer and an assistant editor for Football Outsiders, and he's been kind enough to join the show. Scott, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Looking forward to getting in some NFL with you. Before we get into some of the current goings-on in the National Football League, I wanted to give the listeners a better sense of how you got started with everything that you do. Most of us grow up as football fans, but how did you end up getting involved in the statistics sides of things?
2: You know, one of the things I started tracking um, probably in 2005 or so. I started a file on uh, fourth quarter comebacks and you know putting together drives. Essentially, were the drive stats. Uh, for each game, for you know, game-winning drive opportunities, comeback opportunities. Just because at the time, yeah, you know, the analysis of that was, uh, you know, oh this quarterback, he's a choker. Oh this one's so clutch, and yeah, you know, I didn't think there was any good numbers uh, on that stuff. And to me, you kind of had to keep track of each opportunity uh, just to see what happens. And uh, that's something I started keeping track of over a decade ago. And as time went on, we got more data, more game logs. Uh, better research options. Yeah, you know, you're able to look into this stuff more and put together stats on that. And uh, with Pro Football Reference, I was able to come up with this article that showed back in 2009, August 2009, this article that showed definitive proof that John Elway, who for years was known as the comeback king with 47 fourth quarter comebacks, only had 34 comebacks because the Broncos counted games that should not have counted. Uh, if the Broncos were tied and they won the game, they would count that as a comeback. And, you know, the whole logic of a come-from-behind win is you have to actually be trailing. So, I mean, that was something that I could not believe uh, was so um, unstandardized in the NFL annals. Um, I wanted to get something on that together. Uh, I found out that Johnny Unitas had just as many. It was never credited. And so, yeah, I had an article on that and kind of wrote a few few more articles on that for the pro football reference blog which unfortunately closed in 2011 but the archives are still up so people could still go back and read that old great stuff but um, you know I happened to graduate right at the time of the recession um, pretty poor timing so you know it was was difficult to really find a job locally at least in in this field so as time went on I kind of stuck you know, putting the come stuff out there. And I would get, you know, requests through email from various writers, people from Washington Post, uh, New York Times, you know, about my d- data. But I wasn't really writing for anyone. And then I think in summer of 2011, I saw a post for this new website called Football Nation. I was looking to hire writers, and I signed up for that. And they accepted me, and I was quickly – put under a different branch of the website called Cold Hard Football Facts, uh, which has been around for I think um, 13 years as well, uh, came out around the same time as FO. So yeah, I started writing on there for the 2011 season, and you know it went really well, and I, I had a writer of the year award they gave out, and I won that uh, for the first year of the website. And you know I ended up taking a job with Bleacher Report in 2012. Um, I got a job with NBC sports running weekly column sports illustrated i was actually able to do a pretty cool multi sport feature article on the playoffs for them that went on the front page uh, about 10 months into my writing career had an article on the front page of sports illustrated pretty cool day there um so again you know when you start out in the business now there's not a lot of places with full-time employment so you kind of have to freelance uh, get as many jobs as you can, and that's what I was doing for a while. And then, you know, 2013 came around and kind of was building up a good reputation. I think Twitter's an invaluable resource for uh, establishing contacts and your uh, getting your work out there. And um, by that time, you know, 2013, I was in my going into my third season covering the NFL on a full-time basis, and I just so happened to spot a job opening at Football Outsiders for the assistant editor and. You know, I contacted Iron uh, Chats and you know, he was familiar with my work. We were, I think we've discussed uh, some things in emails in the past, and I uh, was able to get that job, and uh, that's where I've been uh, for the last three years. And you know, with, through that, we worked with ESPN Insider. I write for the Football Siders Almanac the last three years. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing now. And it really kind of all started with a random comment on a message board, but Uh, you never know. I mean, you catch a lucky break.
1: Right. And here we are. And you mentioned pro football reference, which is still one of the holy grails when it comes to statistics and looking things up when you need pertinent information. And one of your claims to fame, as you mentioned, was the database was started for quarterbacks starts and your work and research even got some of those stats changed. And then you went on to put together the game winning drives the fourth quarter comebacks when you're doing projects like that how much time and energy goes into something like that in order to get it all compiled
2: yeah i mean i'm a very meticulous person i love even when i'm writing an article now even if i'm 99 percent sure i spelled a player's name right i still will sometimes look it up just to be sure um i I think it's just a good thing to do as a writer Uh, you want to be checking facts and getting things accurate and you know not causing as much work for your editors so uh, i definitely took a lot of hours to put together uh, this data um this was back when google had a very good newspaper archive search it's not as good as it used to be it's a little difficult to uh, find what you need but that was an invaluable way of discovering about old games uh, you know seeing when johnny Unitis was out with an injury Uh, you know, Fran Tarketon, he used to have 125 wins, but he has 124 now. So, sorry, Fran, we took that one away from you. (laughs) A game game he didn't even play in, so, you know, we got the Vikings to correct that. And um, Yeah, I mean, old NFL, the record keeping is not as great as, say, baseball, where, you know, they're all on top of that stuff going back for 100 years or so. And, you know, the NFL, there's, there's some spotty areas and you know, we're still not, you know, 100% sure on you know, who really started which games back in, say, the 40s, uh, back when they had players playing both sides of the ball. Even I'm not very interested in the pre, the two-way you know two player era. I think it's just such a different, it's, it's hardly recognizable as uh, the football we know now. So, um, you yeah, I try to at least go back to 1950 uh, to get things accurate. And, again, I think, you know, we found some pretty good stuff um, on the comebacks and, some of the interesting things could come out of that. I mean, just figure out which quarterbacks were on teams that rarely came from behind. You know, Len Dawson with the Chiefs. Um, that was one of the teams that usually dominated games, didn't give up many points. Um, and again, Johnny Unitas. He threw more game winning touchdown passes than anyone. Um, Andrew Luck will have a chance to break that. Something about Colts uh, relying on their quarterbacks so heavily. Obviously, Peyton Manning, the all time record holder and comebacks and game-winning drives. and uh, you know, It's just something that I always wanted to write about as a weekly column. That's actually an idea I came up with during the 2010 season, was going to do on Pro Football Reference, but again, the blog closed in 2011. So thankfully, I found another avenue, and I've been doing that for six seasons in a row now.
1: What do you think are some of the more surprising tidbits that you've been able to compile with the fourth quarter comebacks and the game winning drives? Because as you mentioned, that's one of the main topics of discussion that you might have with some friends at a bar when it comes to talking about the greatest quarterbacks of all time on the greatest teams of all time. Are there a couple names that might stick out that might surprise some people who you might think would be somebody that's high up on that list, or somebody that you would think would be very high, but is actually not as good when it comes to the game-winning drives?
2: Yeah, I think the Green Bay quarterbacks always kind of shock people. I mean, Brett Favre a lot of game-winning drives, but a lot of opportunities and a lot of game-ending game-ending interceptions and right. turnovers. Um, you know, I can't can't think of the number off the top of my head, um, but I think something like 54, something like 54 turnovers uh, in those situations and games that the Packers lost. Um, you know, not a record. I mean, he did have 45 game-winning drives, but like I said, he played the most games ever. So you know, Favre does have a lot of the volume stats. And then Aaron Rodgers. I mean, that's the one that I kind of wrote an article before the 2011 season began it was one of the first articles I wrote, uh, Cold Hard Football Facts, and I think it was called uh, Aaron Rodgers, Front Runner Extraordinaire. And, again, I think a lot of people don't understand. Writers have very little control over the titles of their articles. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that was a title that has kind of stuck pretty well. Um, we called the Packers a front-running team that, you know, that has to blow the doors off opponents early, or they don't really fight back if you punch them in the mouth early. And, you know, amazingly enough, that season, Green Bay started 13-0. and uh, without trailing once in the fourth quarter uh, did so in the previous 6 games of the 2010 Super Bowl season so they had a 19 game winning streak where they never trailed in the fourth quarter which was 6 games beyond the all-time record which was set by the Redskins back in the 40s um, back in the same ball era so you know after I write this article they go on this greatest front running streak in NFL history and again we see Green Bay each year kind of struggle in the close games um, they're Mike McCarthy, and again Aaron Rodgers. You know, we had this stat on Sunday: one in thirty now when they're down by multiple scores in the second half. And the craziest thing about that is, with other quarterbacks, you know Matt Flynn, they're two, four, and one. So I mean, it's 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 very awkward thing that you would not expect from someone who is, you know, one of the greatest of all time. And um, so I think the Green Bay quarterbacks definitely stand up for the wrong reason. Uh, the Colts quarterbacks uh, look very good.
1: I know one of your bigger projects over the summer actually ended up being a three-parter that you've got pinned to your Twitter profile was building a Super Bowl winner. What was the main focus of those pieces and what would you say the perfect formula would be if you were to figure out that type of equation?
2: Yeah. I mean, we, we did the article with football outsiders, three parts. Um, you know, we have, we have data on the website going back to 1989. So that's, that's the st- that's the part that's the, those are the years we looked at from 1989 through 2015 and just you know looking for what traits are shared by Super Bowl winners mm-hmm. and typically uh, one of the biggest findings is that it's a team that's already good so I mean I think 72 percent of Super Bowl teams in this era they were in the playoffs the year before so I mean part of my motivation, for writing it was just the way people try to you know find dark horses or super bowls you know i think the oakland raiders were one of those teams this year uh, the minnesota vikings were another one um it still looks pretty good for uh minnesota but uh you know one of the things we want to look at were you know is being a balanced team actually a good strategy i mean do would you rather have a number 10 offense number 10 defense or you know, would you ever have the number one offense and maybe you know the 18th defense? I mean, is it better to be balanced or is it better to have a dominant unit? And we found that most of the Super Bowl winners since 1989 they had at least one dominant unit. And obviously, the Broncos last year had the best defense in the league uh, by a pretty good margin as well. So, and you know, they had the worst offense to win the Super Bowl uh, in this era as well. So that unit was able to carry that team. But generally, in this era, you know we've seen some surprise Super Bowl teams, the Ravens and the Giants, teams that got hot at the end of the year, but they were generally good teams over an extended period of time. John Harbaugh made the playoffs his first five seasons. yeah you know, that was a team that was close, right? Uh, the Giants usually start you know five and two or whatever. I think they started five and two like seven years in a row under Tom Coughlin and Obviously, I think Eli Manning was spectacular into 2011. I just he tied NFL records, seven fourth-quarter comebacks, eight game-winning drives. I mean, their season hung in the balance so many times. I know Dallas fans will still tell you about the time, uh, to, what's his name, Miles Austin lost the ball in the lights on Sunday Night Football. You know, 12-point comeback for the Giants that kind of decided the NFC East. So, I mean, that was a great uh, way to start my career with that season with the Giants and all the comeback wins. And even a guy named Tim Tebow, I will admit, kind of helped, you know, get my column out there that season. You know, Super Bowl teams, they're not as dominant as they used to be. I mean, the 1991 Redskins, I think, are still in the number one team in Football Outsiders database. Um, You know, the Cowboys, Jimmy Johnson's teams were really strong. But generally, you know, in the and it's free, it's, it's really it's the salary cap era, so it's hard to build a great team on both sides of the ball. It's hard to sustain it and keep the players, you know, in town for a extended period of time, which is why you know we haven't seen a repeat Super Bowl winner in 12 years, the longest span in history. But um, generally speaking, you know, you want to pick a Super Bowl team, you have to be a team that's already good, that's been close in the past. And again, I think it's actually, it's better to have a dominant unit than to be just balanced.
1: When it comes to the record books, do you have a favorite or most obscure, or is there a record that you like to reference often that people might not think of, but holds a lot of weight with whatever you might happen to be talking about?
2: I think when you start out watching football or just take maybe a a general casual fan view, usually we think of sacks as being a function of offensive line play. Right. Whereas I think a lot of our research has shown that the quarterback has a lot more say over sacks and even pressure rate. Um, you know, I think the problem with pressure stats is that they're very subjective. Uh, different outlets will have different stats. Personally, I like our stats that are coordinated with ESPN's charting. I think they do a good job of, gauging uh, plays where the quarterback is actually affected by the pressure and you know, they're pretty consistent from year to year. I think around about a quarter of pass plays in the league are affected by pressure. So um, I think you look at that data, quarterbacks have a great control over that and it's really about getting rid of the ball and what kind of system you run. And um, you know, we see great correlation with that. And I think, when you talk about stats or how many times does a quarterback lead the league in this stat, to me, Dan Marino leading the league in lowest sack rate 10 times in his career, that is just an unbelievable stat. I mean, there's no – I, I even tried to look this up. When I couldn't find any other stat that a player led the NFL in more times than Dan Marino led the league in sack percentage, 10 times. And you think about you know all the different offensive line combinations that he played with over those seasons. It's obviously not just about the blocking, but it's the quarterbacks with the quick release, the decision-making, and, you know, that to me is definitely one of the things where, you know, if you were to have a football stats 101 course, you know, learning about the quarterback's impact on sacks and pressure, you know, that would be one of the biggest topics.
1: Another hot topic that always seems to come up, especially when there might be retirements. We spoke a lot about this when Peyton Manning retired after the end of last season, the rankings of the top quarterbacks of all time. Do you have a top three? And is that helped by what you've been able to find through doing all this research?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a ranking. I have a top 64, actually. Uh, that kind of that kind of just started as a thing because uh, when Joe Flacco signed his first absurdly high contract in 2013, you know the, the thought was, you know, is he even a top 64 quarterback of all time? And I think 64 came because it was in March, and you know they're trying to tie that into March Madness or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, I have a I have a list, and definitely it's something I try to change on a yearly basis. But know, yeah, I think the top the top guys there's not a whole lot of movement there for me. I mean, it, it takes a lot for me to make that kind of move on a, a player, just because I think the guys at the top, you have such a good opinion on, whereas some, somebody like in the thirties or forties, you know, you might bump them up after a really good year. Um, somebody like, I like guess Tony Romo uh, is allowed to come back and start and has a great season. I could move him up like five or eight spots without really thinking a whole lot about it. But I think the top, top, Five or so is really sacred, and really once you get past uh, 15, 20, you know the the quality really does drop. It's it's quite noticeable. But um, you know I think five of the top 15 quarterbacks of all time uh, were active as of last season. Um, you know I had Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, uh, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, and Ben Roethlisberger. Is that top five um, group? So I think yeah you know, this is a golden era that we were experiencing, and unfortunately Peyton Manning retired. Aaron Rodgers is in a ridiculous funk right now. Um, Drew Brees has absolutely no defense. Ben Roethlisberger got hurt. So, I mean, it's not exactly the greatest season uh, right now for them. But um, that group definitely stands out for me. And when you go to top five all time, um, you know, I've been pretty uh, strict on going with uh, Brady at number five, Dan Marino at number four, Johnny Unitas number three, Joe Montana number two and Peyton Manning number
1: one. As a Denver Broncos fan, I can tip my cap to you putting Manning at number one. (laughs) Well, yeah,
2: it's probably something I'll have to write a book about someday. But it's just one that I feel very strongly about. Um, Yeah, I I mean, we could go an entire show just on that topic. But again, to me, there's no player who, regardless of what you put around him, you know, the coaching, the the teammates, the defense, running game, regardless of what you put around them, no player gives you a better chance to win any game than Peyton Manning. And, you know, I think he proved that over a long period of time. um and I think, again, the coaching is a huge point. You know, Bill Walsh and Bill Belichick helped the other guys groom them into what they became. And, you know, to me, Peyton Manning, he got drafted anywhere in 1998. And I think he would have had a Hall of career. And, um you know, to me, that's, that's one that, I have a hard time seeing changing uh, down the road, but um, you know, Andrew Luck gets a lot of comparisons, but you know I just have the feeling Andrew Luck will never be as good as Manning, but I mean, for anyone to take that as an insult, it's just ridiculous. And, you know, he's a fine young quarterback, but again, we're talking, you know, best of all time. And uh, they just don't come around often like that.
1: So since you've got, a pretty good handle on quarterbacks. I figured we'd begin wrapping things up by having me throw out a couple of names in the National Football League so people can keep an eye out on what they might be doing for the rest of the season. And since he has the least amount of games under his belt, we could start with Tom Brady. Were you surprised to see him just really get right back on the horse from where he last left it from last season?
2: No, I mean, I wasn't surprised, I think. You know, he played in the preseason. Um, and again, I mean, Bill Belichick is going to have the team ready no matter uh, who the opponent is, no matter who's starting. They're always going to be prepared and better prepared to, uh, than who they're playing. And again, they were doing pretty well uh, in the first four games without them. And then, obviously, Jacoby Brissett is not quite up to, you know, the experience level of a quarterback that can run that offense to perfection. But, you know, I think Jimmy Grappolo looked quite good. Um, you know, Patriots fans obviously can be very pleased about his future, assuming that he's, is the true successor to Brady, which, you know, would seem to be logical at his age, because again, quarterbacks, they all eventually succumb to old age and, you know, Brady at 39 still looks good, but, um, you know, it just kind of hits you quick. And we've seen that countless times in the past, but, uh yeah, I'm not surprised with it so far. I just think, you know, the whole league is going to have to catch up to what the Patriots are doing with their offense. Seems like every year there's a new wrinkle or new addition that is hard to account for right away. And right now I think it's Martellus Bennett.
1: It seems like they're the early favorite to at least get back to the Super Bowl. Do you see any teams being able to catch up with the Patriots and be able to compete with the level that Tom Brady has been competing at to maybe knock them off that perch later in the season?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was the question we had on ESPN Insider this week. And I kind of didn't want to really pick a team because I honestly believe that, you know, they're their own biggest enemy and it's a matter of staying healthy and I mean, really, it's Brady and Gronkowski. Those are the players that, you know, have to stay healthy. And, you know, Brady usually does, but Gronkowski is the one that's had trouble in the past with injuries. And, um, but again, as long as they're healthy, I really have a hard time seeing anyone beat them. But, uh, you know, as history shows, when the Patriots lose in the playoffs, it's always a rematch from the regular season. Um, So, you know, you think about Pittsburgh, you're not going to have Roethlisberger this week. And if they do have them back in a in playoff game, then obviously also Cam Hayward, as a, you know, the, probably the best defensive player on the Steelers is out. So I mean, if that's a rematch in New England in January, you know, it would obviously be a lot different than what's going to happen on Sunday. But you know, at the same time, I just know that the Steelers uh, have been mm-hmm. very much out coached and outplayed when they play New England over the years. But yeah, that's a team that can actually score and keep pace uh, with the the offense of New England. So, I mean, that would have to be one option. And then the other, I think, is Kansas City. You know, people kind of forget that Jeremy Macklin was playing very injured in the playoff game in January. Justin Houston, I think he only played like eight snaps, was not healthy at all. Spencer Ware was the best running back after Jamal Charles got hurt. He wasn't playing in that game. So I think if the Chiefs went into uh, Foxborough this year, you know, they have a chance to have their best running backs um, and you know, be able to control the clock, long drives. Um, You know, Justin Houston could come back um, provide a great pass rush. And I think he's not, I mean, not quite Vaughn Miller, but I mean, he's pretty close, Um, you know, someone like that. And obviously Marcus Peters, great ball skills. So I think, yeah, that's a team that could hang with the Patriots. But again, there's very few options because, um, You know, I don't think Houston has any shot. You know, the Colts are a wreck right now, probably won't make the playoffs. The Bengals have disappointed. And, you know, the Ravens have been Patriot killers in the past, but I just don't think you could trust that team right now to make the playoffs. And even a team like Buffalo or Oakland, if they break their long playoff drought, I just don't think uh, going to New England is going to work out for them in January. So, you know, to me, it's Pittsburgh or Kansas City or uh, you know, it's easy Super Bowl troops for New England.
1: You mentioned earlier Aaron Rodgers, and he's been under a little bit of criticism for some of the early losses the Packers have had so far. Of course, if he heard us talking about this, he might tell us to R-E-L-A-X, as he had in the past. But you did mention the statistic about fourth quarter comebacks, and if the Packers are down heading into the end of the game, especially if it's two scores, the odds are very much against them that they're going to be able to come back. I have a feeling they'll be able to right the ship, but at this point, what have you seen so far from Aaron Rodgers that might put up a couple red flags from the way he's been able to perform so far?
2: Again, the performance in Minnesota is also uh, a big problem for Green Bay, uh, possibly looking at just a loud card. But there were problems early last season you yeah, know, had, he had the great game on Monday night against Kansas City. Um, and that was like the third game of the season. And then they kind of had three games where they won them. His stats were pretty decent, but, yeah, you know, they weren't uh, exactly dominant performances. And, you know, they were 6-0 and by week, going to this big game with Denver on Sunday night, and they just got destroyed in that game. And Rodgers, you know, I think he had, what, 77 yards passing, just just could not do anything against that defense. And uh, from there, it's just been an incredible slump. And the only time he's actually looked like the old Rodgers was against Detroit this season. And Detroit is making every quarterback look like vintage Aaron Rodgers right now, including Case Keenum, who was 26-28 to start Sunday's game. So, I mean, that game, you know, some people thought, oh, Aaron Rodgers is back. And I was kind of like, oh, well, you know, let's wait a minute. And sure enough, uh, he's gone right back to the same substandard performance. And I, mean, I really think he left a ton of points on the field on Sunday against Dallas and, you know, the fumble at the one yard line and just some of the throws that he missed that were, you know, something you used to expect all the time. And, you know, everyone thought Jordy Nelson coming back would be a cure all for this offense. And it uh, just hasn't. Uh, done anything really? I mean, he gets a touchdown every week, but you know they're not on the same page that they used to be. The explosive plays down the field aren't there, and you know the accuracy again more off off-target throws last two years uh, than any of his past seasons. Uh, last season, the receivers had their lowest drop percentage of his career, so it's not just about the receivers dropping balls either. So, I mean, I've never seen really anything like it before from a top-tier, you know, all-time great quarterback. Usually, if there's a drop in performance for this extended period of time, you can trace it back to an injury. But I think physically, he looks fine. I mean, his arm, he threw a ball a good 65 yards against Detroit in the air. Um, you know, he can run around, obviously. He's still good at doing that. So I think physically, he's fine. This might be more of a mental, um, you know, wall in his game. But it's unbelievable how long this has gone on.
1: One of the biggest storylines that's looming is Tony Romo eventually returning from his injury in Dallas. And if he'll take back his spot from Dak Prescott, who's really taken the world by storm along with his partner in crime, Ezekiel Elliott, leading the Cowboys to an early five and one start. What do you think the best decision would be for the Dallas Cowboys when Tony Romo is ready to come back? Should they take Dak out and risk losing the momentum that he's been able to build up or put Tony Romo in because of the experience he's had throughout his career, especially later in the year when they might be in a playoff push in the NFC East?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty confident in Romo being able to come back play the high level and again I just I've seen the arguments from Cowboys fans this week and you know I don't think blaming Tony Romo for playoff failures is a reason to keep him on the bench you know it doesn't really pass the sniff test whereas Dak Prescott has started six games in his NFL career I'm not sure if any of them have been against a playoff caliber opponent maybe Green Bay but um you know again let's just hold off on uh claiming this guy is the next quarterback Where well, obviously he will be their successor and they should be very happy with how he's played. But to me, Romo did not lose his job for performance. It was injuries. So I think he should have a chance to regain it. And I just don't see any reason why Dallas would suddenly play worse football uh, with Tony Romo, at quarterback. I mean, he's going to give you experience, uh, someone that can run in no huddle, someone who can improvise and make plays. You know, when pr- protection breaks down, um, you know, he can't maybe run as well as, Prescott, but I mean, you know, Prescott's not exactly Cam Newton out there. I mean, or even, you know, top tier rushing Russell Wilson. So, I mean, he's had some rushing touchdowns, but it's not exactly like one of those other quarterbacks and mostly a pocket passer. So, I think mean, Romo, again, with that offensive line, Des Bryant comes back. I mean, it's shocking that Des Bryant could not get on the same page with Dak Prescott when he was healthy. Whereas Cole Beasley, you know, Terrence Williams, I think they're catching 70, 80% of their passes from Prescott. But, you know, I think Romo, he's experienced with playing with those guys. Uh, with Jason Witten, again, Ezekiel Elliott, rookie of the year, probable. Um, so, I mean, you have everything going for you. Defense is playing one of the best stretches it has in the last decade. Again, I don't see any reason why you don't go back to Romo in, you put him on a short leash, and if he doesn't play well, if he gets hurt, then you just go back to Dak Prescott. No one can sustain a real high level of play as a team throughout the whole season. There's going to come a game where Dak Prescott looks like a rookie, and he makes mistakes, and Dallas loses. I mean, I think you just make the move now, assuming he's, assuming he's 100% healthy. I mean, that's the key. You don't know, just rush him back. But, you know, if a bye week, that's very, you know, convenient timing. So I think it's a good time to bring Roma back and uh, get this thing going but um I understand the reason for wanting to keep Dak Prescott in but you know I think his time will come and he's done a great job so far but yeah you know, this is still Roma's team
1: Are there any quarterbacks up to this point that have surprised you whether that's in a good or bad way so far
2: Yeah I would say Sam Bradford has definitely surprised me um you know, I never been a fan um I think, his rookie, se- even from his rookie season, you know, there's kind of the uh, media um, preference to build up a superstar player uh, before they actually hit that status. And his, his rookie season was just not very good, but and he got a lot of credit for that. And then once he got injured in the second season, he did not play as well. You know, the media kind of forgot all about Sam Bradford and just kind of making a lot of money for Roy really doing anything in uh, St. Louis. And then he goes to the Eagles, another nice contract, has another pretty mediocre season, though it did get better down the stretch. And, um, you yeah, know, he still was going to be the starter this year. And then all of a sudden, Teddy Bridgewater gets hurt, and you have this crazy trade. I thought Minnesota gave too much for a quarterback that marginally gives you more than Sean Hill would. I've always been a big Sean Hill fan. Uh, I think he's one of the more competent backups. And you know, he's come out and played really well. And you now they don't have a good running game. Uh, it's one of the worst in the league. You know, they don't have Adrian Peterson. They um they didn't have Stefan Diggs their last game. They're losing offensive linemen and Bradford's just hanging in there against pressure and playing well. And they're not scoring many points, but um, you know, he did just get there in August and Uh, again, he looks better than he ever has in his career. And I don't know if he can, I mean, it's only been four games, but, uh, we'll see if he can sustain it. But yeah, if he has a career year, leads the Vikings to the playoffs, then, you know, it absolutely was worth the, um, first round pick. And I never would have expected that.
1: Are there any storylines that we should be keeping an eye out for, for the rest of the season, whether that's on the quarterback side of things or the record book or stats side of things that... We should keep track of in the upcoming weeks,
2: yeah, I mean, I think i will just uh kind of toot my horn about my Super Bowl pick you know I, I went I went for Seattle again probably like the third year in a row, and you know one of my favorite stats that I came up with, you know the Seahawks ability to compete every week to not have you know these awful games like the Steelers again, I say this as a fan, but the Steelers love to just go on the road and absolutely tank against a team that they should have beaten. Um, you know, the worst performance any team had against Miami this year. And the Steelers do that every single year, a couple times even. And Seattle under Pete Carroll has been unbelievably competitive. I think it's up to 93 games now. Going back to week 3 of the 2011 season, the Seahawks have had a 93 game stretch where they were at least within one score in the fourth quarter. Um You know, it's just an unbelievable run. The previous record was 69 games by the Packers, uh, 2008 to 2012. The Seahawks are at 93 games where they have not been blown out. And, again, every game they come back, and they've been down 21 points. They were down 31 nothing in the playoffs in Carolina. Still came back to within a touchdown. uh, Didn't get the onside kick at the end. So, I mean, they take every game serious. And you cannot – blow that team out over the course of 60 minutes and uh, have a lot of respect for that. And, you know, Pete Carroll was great at doing that. USC. They rarely ever were blown out. Russell Wilson was just like that in college. Uh, go figure. So, I mean, it's been an incredible streak. And because of that streak, the Seahawks have led the league in DVLA, our main efficiency staff, football outsiders. They led the league in DVLA four years in a row, which has never been done before. And, I didn't check the current ratings. I think they're near the top again. So they have a chance to make it five years in a row. And, again, it's just a function of being such a balanced team on both sides of the ball. Um, yeah, you know, the running game's not quite there yet this year, but they've had some injuries. And I think Kristen Michael, another player, has kind of proven me wrong with his uh, start this season. You know, they'll get the running game going. The defense is obviously still strong. And, and, you know, if they only win one Super Bowl, it'll be a huge disappointment, obviously. And I, I can think of which play uh, they should have changed to uh, win another one. You know, run the run the ball at the one yard line, please. <laughs> and hopefully, that's not the legacy that they have. But I think they'll have it, they have as good as a chance as anyone to um, you know win win the Super Bowl.
1: Scott, I have to thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was great to hear some of the insights that you don't normally hear on a day-to-day basis or when watching football on Sunday. So hopefully the listeners were broadened a little bit more to some of the different things that you've been able to put together throughout the years. And if you come up with a new stat, I guess I'll just have to have you come back onto the show so you can fill us in more about that as well. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can subscribe to The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or by searching for John Lund Under Artists. By doing so, you'll immediately be notified when new episodes are posted as podcasts each week. You can also leave a positive rating and review to make me seem a lot better than I might actually be. The Bridge Sports Podcast can also be found on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn, as well as SportsRadioAmerica.com by searching for The Bridge under the Shows tab. And you can also listen to the show live every Wednesday night at sportsradioamerica.com or on the TuneIn app. You can subscribe to The Bridge Newsletter, which will provide weekly updates about the next show and who the featured guests might be by visiting londonbridge.com email. You can also email the show at media at londonbridge.com, and you can call in or text into the show anytime, any day at 929-Bridge-7. That's 929-274-3437. On the next installment of The Bridge, we'll take a look at the MLB playoffs and see which two teams are playing in the World Series. We'll take a look around the National Football League. We'll take a peek at the start of the NBA regular season and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.